Hello, my name is James McDermott. I'm a writer, teacher and 26-year-old cisgendered man. As a gay man, I love men, but as a gay man, I dislike men too. As a camp man who talks and writes about his feelings, I have always questioned stereotypical masculine ideals. As stereotypical men aren't camp, don't talk about their feelings and certainly don't create plays and poems about them. As a 26-year-old, I feel I've learned and unlearned lots about being a man, but at 26, still have lots to learn and unlearn about being my own kind of man. In this podcast series, I will talk with several people to explore masculinity, try and work out why we love and hate men, whether there are such things as masculine ideals, how creativity can help men explore and express themselves, and what men still have to learn and unlearn about being their own kind of man. In this episode, I am joined by Katie John Went. Katie, thank you so much for being here. Pleasure. Can I start by asking you to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and what made you want to come onto the podcast today? Uh, you twisted my arm. No, 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 that wasn't it. Although we, we have met on numerous occasions and I do um, hit it off with you just fine. So um, I'm very happy to engage with someone who both gets me and, and and encourages me and allows me to be myself. And that has been my entire journey of life to be myself. I, I, I guess by my very name, Katie John Went is an indication of the fact that I, I fall between several stools. I, I guess I feel like I've been many genders in my life and perhaps more more often than not now associate outside of any gender. Um, I'm very much a speaker and educator on gender and identity and sexuality and, and well-being and the whole range of human diversity. My, my journey towards self-discovery is pretty much my life. Thank you so much for that uh, introduction and thank you for your lovely words. I feel exactly the same with you. I've been so excited about you coming onto the podcast because every time I talk to you, I feel like you help me re-see things, unlearn things, and just feel a little bit braver in my own identity. So it is an absolute pleasure to have you here. If we can start by talking about education and childhood and that first sense of what we were learning about gender and identity. So can I ask you to talk to me about your relationship with masculinity and gender around, say, six years old? I guess age five or six was the was a critical time in my life two things happened around that time age five I had an operation on my genitals so that's going to uh, affect child growing up and I it was also the first time I went to primary school and and, and that was incredibly difficult because up until the age of five I just felt like a, a small pocket-sized human being and then instead I go to primary school and I find that they want to classify you into boy and girl I do have strong memories at some point around that age, five or six, of a teacher saying, sometimes saying, OK, boys sit here, girls sit here. And me thinking, where do I sit then? And it wasn't that I didn't feel like a girl or a boy. It's that I felt that the boys were boring and, <laughs> and the girls more interesting. And it wasn't sensual. It wasn't sexual. I, I just recall that the girls felt more like my tribe, but I knew at the same time that I didn't feel like them. And if anything, I felt like a tomboy at the time. And I really wasn't sure like a Russian doll where the male inside the female inside the male inside the female was or which one was currently out. And it's, it is really hard trying to put 
language and thoughts of yourself at five or six when at five or six you don't necessarily think deeply but you do feel like fuck so my feelings ran very deep and within that I had strong feelings even if I've now put them into projected scenarios but my feelings were I didn't fit there were only two choices where do I align with that and and, and the classics as a as, as a primary um, school pupil of um, how well you do at sport defines on how masculine you are how much you're one of the boys defines on how masculine you are if you talk to the girls and show affection for the girls that's not properly masculine and but as I say up until five there was no judgment about that and I remember playing football in the street with the three and a half year old girl next door um, I remember making rose petal perfume sat on the curbside with a girl a few doors up. And I remember playing with a boy down the road. And I remember climbing trees with, again, a girl next door. And not thinking I'm climbing a tree with a girl, but I'm climbing a, tr a, cre a tree with a kid. And I loved tree climbing. And I loved outdoor pursuits. Um, and I love bookish stuff as well. But as I say, all of the things that I did and enjoyed up till five, no one had ever gendered to my recollection. And I think that was the beginning of my internal social trauma of how to fit. And not the least of that was, again, I bonded dominantly with with girls. But it was the it was the confident girls. And as adults, we often ascribe things like confidence and assertion to testosterone and masculinity. And yet I was finding that in the girls I felt most comfortable with. So I, I think I definitely my, my first experiences of masculinity were confusion. But it wasn't necessarily just confusion from my peers. It was confusion from my teachers who, who were kind of ascribing the choices that I didn't, that I thought were too narrow. So I think that my strongest feelings around six are definitely feelings rather than thinkings. And it was a sense of belonging I felt most. And I felt like I didn't at the time, again, this was the beauty of being five or six, though, that at five or six, I felt like I could belong with the girls. But I didn't have to change anything to do that. I didn't have to be a girl to be with the girls and I didn't have to adjust my behaviours, didn't have to become more or less masculine to be accepted. And at, no, and at that age, I didn't feel like I was inauthentic. I, I just felt like I was being me and I was accepted as me by uh, far more girls than boys. But I definitely had boys who were friends too. There was something I found amongst the girls that the boys didn't have, which was emotional communication. And the girls were far more comfortable talking about feelings and the boys and the boys didn't want to do that. I buried my father 48 hours ago. He died um, two weeks ago and was um, very present in my life and at the same time very distant because he was a working class man who came from a, a generation that didn't do feelings, really. And, and I, the, the, the first time I hugged him was an accident because he wasn't a hugger. Although later in life I did challenge him and say, Dad, why didn't you hug me when I was young? And he said, well, we tried, but you wouldn't stand still long enough, which I have to admit, I give them points for that one because it's probably true. Um, I, I was a highly energetic kid, um, always finding things to be interested in, and I didn't sleep. Five or six was also the time when I developed insomnia, um, didn't, and I've not really slept since. Five or six was also the time when for a year I didn't grow. Um partly due to perhaps not sleeping and also some kind of hormonal event going on inside my body. I've no idea. But so five or six is a very interesting point to start because it is always the point at which 
both my mental health and my gender identity had essentially started. Um, and I don't know whether how much to blame society and school and external things for that and how much to, you know, accept internal um, and indeed bodily hormonal developments. But it's very definitely a case of relationships that I don't understand, yeah. Thank you so much for such eloquent response. First and foremost, that notion, that lovely little phrase of feeling like a pocket-sized human until going to school and then you'll turn into a boy or a girl by that classification system you went through. I remember feeling something so similar. Just one of my kind of first shaming events is when a geography teacher said to the whole class, boys are over there, girls are over there. James, you're a boy, by the way, you're over there with the boys. And I just remember kind of my face burning. And that was the first time I became aware of not really blending in with people and my otherness. So, uh, so, and that beautiful phrase you had about the Russian dolls and not knowing whether the boy or the girl was on the outside. So that's stunning. So that sense as well, I'm really interested in that phrase you said of no one models uh, an alternative masculinity, that sense of someone being demonstrative and tactile and affectionate. Were you seeing that anywhere? Were you spotting it in culture? Because I chatted in previous podcasts about being five, six, seven, and not being able to say what I am, but being able to point to it in kind of cultural figures like Frank Spencer, who I was obsessed with, and I think <laughs> spoke to my nascent camp. Were you spotting alternative masculinities in anyone culturally? Um, well, being 473 years old, um, and, and you being a young whippet, although I'm still astonished that um, Frank Spencer <laughs> features in your years um i guess um i was five or six in in 1972 um but actually i remember frank spencer very well and actually finding his gender and his expression neither here nor there just being super annoyed by his ineptitude um and i found that annoying and to me actually i found him incredibly emasculine if we're going to call it that simply because he was incompetent and there was an element to do with masculine was competent and female was incompetent. If you go back to kind of Victorian um, discussions of female hysteria and, and women not being capable of things. So interestingly, yes, I actually, as a, even as a youngster watching um, some others do, have I felt that Frank was an annoyingly inept uh, and, uh, and his wife was actually the sensible one. It's interesting that somewhere already the judgment was in the culture that strong people were masculine and weak or impractical or inept people were feminine. And yet, here's the irony, I was most drawn to finding those abilities or aptitudes in women. And I was drawn to strong women. And I wouldn't call my mother strong. My mother's four foot ten was saying, hey, I'm not feeling strong today. Um, and I guess for my dad, his strength seemed to lie in his silence very often. Uh, and yet, to me, that's silent strength equated with distance. Again, this is a, um, if you go down the roots of language, why do we associate strong with male and and weak, needy, or honest, or emotional with women again? So I, I can see myself looking at characters in media at the time and regularly being drawn to the female characters. But it was the stronger female characters, the ones that embodied what we might be calling conventional masculinity or, or, or male characteristics i think that's so well articulated and i haven't thought about that before and that sense of receiving a more feminine masculinity through strong women on tv hearing you say that that chimes with all my obsessions with your kind of soap opera divas in the 90s or victoria wood and working class comedians no and i think it's it's difficult because i you know for, for you know we're 
we both love media, but at the same time, media is performance. And where, what's the performance basing itself on? Because the performance itself then tends to mediate and, and affect the next generation who, who are simply living. And the whole idea, as Judith Butler said, that gender is a performance, you know, is which comes first. Are some people acting out gender and then some people, you know, mimicking it and replicating it? Or are some people acting out gender because that's what they're observing and then they're mimicking it and expressing it? And it ends up in a, a vicious circle of where we get it from. Because as I say, we, we're born genderless in that sense. And we're born with the freedom to express ourselves. And by five or six, suddenly something starts cutting in and saying, no, not like that. Absolutely. I think, again, really beautifully expressed. Thank you. So can I ask how your relationship changed then from the age of six to, say, puberty 16, how your relationship with gender and identity had changed in that time? <laughs> well, here's the go. If you're going to pick arbitrary ages like 6, 16, 26 and go for puberty by 16, you're going to have problems with me because I spent seven years under a paediatrician during my teens um, because puberty didn't arrive. Um <laughs> So that was one issue. And I had, by 16, I, I was at an all-boys school for my sins. Um, I chose to go there, my, more for me. Um, I loved the education um, and a distraction-free environment, shall we say. That didn't necessarily help because my first relationship was with a guy at the school. Um, but at 16, I w may as well have been 12 or 13. Um, every other kid in, in in the fifth form and sixth form had experienced puberty started shaving voices had dropped muscles had bulged um, was playing in the rugby team and there was me dropping out of every sport I could get out of to avoid being in a shower with a bunch of 16 year old guys because I looked like a 12 year old I sounded like a 12 year old and I was actually um up as a potential candidate on a human growth hormone program because I was so short and so small um, and and I was petite and, and I, we had no idea what was going on and they were looking at me on you know under orthodontics under pediatrics um, and so I was prodded and poked for seven years to work out why I didn't particularly have an obvious puberty being prodded and poked by a paediatrician with cold hands in the presence of your mother in the room is completely demeaning and emasculating <laughs> um and you know my puberty didn't fire until my, my last year of school and went on through university where I carried on growing till I was 21 so I was about four four and a half five years out of sync with my peers and that led to a huge disconnect um, with personal identity and masculinity. And yet at the same time, I went into opposite territory, um, not like the five or six year old me happy to play with the girls. Instead, the 16 year old me went, signed up for three years in the army cadets, anything to man up. And so that became and, and I was looking massively for acceptance and yet at the same time, love. And also for someone to talk to about it all, but which of which there was no one. So I buried the whole lot inside myself. So on the outside, I became um, more masculine than ever. And as my psychiatrist was eventually to say in my young 40s, um, he could spot me coming a mile away as, as, as a gender variant person because my masculinity was hyper masculinity, uh, which is a version of me you've never met, James. 
um, you know, and he said it was so obvious that there was something going on with you about gender. He said because you were trying too hard to be male, and you know, so I, I find all of that quite interesting because at, at sixteen there was this big disconnect with my environment, which was fully male, um, and and so I was struggling. You know, is masculinity fear? Is masculinity control? Um, or is it so such utter and total bollocks and performance that um, that we generate that in this statuesque way? Um, and yet at the same time, the people, I guess, who my teachers, who I respected most at that time, remember my English masters and my economics teachers, history teachers and art teachers, were those who were in touch with literature, poetry and emotion. Thank you so much for sharing that with me. Uh, so can I ask about those male role models who you were reading at that point and just the effect of that literature shaping you? Because I had a similar experience with not feeling like I conformed to a certain type of masculinity and like you had a great English teacher who kind of steered me in the way of Armistead Morpen, uh, all those kind of people. So I, just, I would love to hear who you were reading at that stage in your life and uh, what they were telling you about yourself that you might not have been getting. Uh, from conversations that you couldn't have had with people. Yeah, um, I, I guess I'm, in, I, I'm more into Armistead Morpin in my 40s and 50s, not my um, teens. That that kind of literature wasn't even available, wasn't on the radar, wasn't in the school library. The literature, actually, to be honest, the not that I didn't bond with it, but the one of the books our, our English teacher was reading to us was Tom Sharp's Porterhouse Blues, which is about a bunch of boys joking around with condoms and blowing up like balloons over Cambridge. Um, you know, so there was an element of, you know, boyish, cockish stupidity and stuff that was attractive almost, which sounds weird knowing who I am now. We also did Romeo and Juliet to death, Macbeth. Again in Macbeth, I remember we had to write an essay on a, on a, as a character study of Lady Macbeth. And I was most drawn to Lady Macbeth in that because of, again, because of her strength. But I think I escaped during those years into, I guess, fantasy fix, I, I you know, I, I was rereading Tolkien. I was getting into anything actually along the lines of that, that had essentially all sorts of species in it. Because, and also similarly with, you know, sci-fi on TV, Doctor Who and things like that. And I found, I found my niche in my teen years, but those aspects of worlds in which there were not just male, female and human, but there was other. And by then, I think I was very strongly discovering in literature and media and, and, and TV and that kind of creativity, anything where the other existed, I identified with. It didn't matter what the other was, whether it was an orc <laughs> or, or a hobbit. I, I identified with other from the, um, the monster to the fairy and just found a hope that the two boxes I'd been offered of male or female or the single box of human that seemed to be available at five or 15 in literature weren't there and in that escapism of fiction you could pen any world you wanted for yourself and and I think I found hope in that and certainly in my internal and my interior world I would lose myself in literature my exterior world I was doing you know several years in the army cadets I was doing tabletop wargaming I was doing masculine pursuits on the outside whilst actually having an interior life that was, I, I wouldn't call it 
not masculine or anything like that at all or feminine far from feminine it was it was just fantasy and in that fantasy world i found identification with the other and i find it interesting that simone de beauvoir you know writes about the, the second sex as the other in other words that all women were othered by men patriarchy others women and uh, and i felt othered by by gender itself so i think that the idea of a real exterior life the idea of future relationships were the furthest things possible from my mind i just wanted to lose myself in another world where difference was regarded as an alternative species rather than some non-conformity that would be ostracized from the any species allowed bear in mind at the whole of this period i was also quite an evangelical christian so <laughs> the idea of masculinity and femininity were defined for me at that time also by the bible which made things more fun or not thank you so much i'm so struck by your escape into sci-fi i've really really empathized with that as well i remember around 16 being obsessed with david tennant's doctor mm. who because he was someone who looked human but was an alien really mm. i think there's so many Certainly LGBTQ people, but certainly anyone who feels othered, that escape into fantasy and sci-fi and identifying with those cultural figures that embody otherness. So common. The the music I was into as a 16-year-old was a, a mixture of everything from heavy rock all the way through to New Romantic. And and I really loved the, the, the music of the New Romantic era, everything from Duran Duran to Japan to David Sylvian um, to The Cure to Tears for Fears and all those groups. And I remember the, the fashion that went along with that was guys wearing eyeliner and and, and, and lacy blouses. And, and, and I couldn't wear that. And a reason I couldn't wear that was because I thought I'd be bullied. I thought people would see that I didn't feel masculine and that, might, that I might be more feminine because I was donning the very outfits that men confident in their masculinity were free to wear. And, 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 and to this day, I still recall all of that and my missed teenage years of expression because I was afraid of what other people would think and, and what they would assume by the messages we send to society, by what we wear. And I didn't realise they wouldn't have given two hoots. They would just have assumed I was a new romantic, not thought, oh my God, there goes a closet trans person. I think hearing you say that, I always get so moved when people talk, LGBTQ people talk about that sense of, kind of not even a misspent teenage years, it's just an unspent teenage years out of fear. And I empathise so much. And I think that's why I obsess over it in writing sometimes. So many people have said to me, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, that, LGBTQ people have a delayed puberty or a second puberty in that sense of we can't come of age in the same time as our straight peers because we will be bullied or assume we'll be bullied. So moving on then in that sense of if you'd had that uh, kind of physical biological delayed puberty, talk to me as well about that sense of that kind of delayed LGBTQ puberty in that sense of when did you in your 20s at that university time start to explore yourself and have that sense of working through that nonsense about it doesn't matter what people think of me, I'm going to start living how I want to live now. Um, well, university for me was the the um, early to mid 80s and, and and it still wasn't free to be you. There was a gay sock at university, but I was also in the Christian Union and the Christian Union would go and stand up and oppose the gay sock. So I, I couldn't exactly be myself. And also at the time, I was really confused. I'd never had a girlfriend by 21. Um, all, all I'd had was a, a boyfriend, a closet boyfriend at school at 15. And and yet there were girls wanting to go out with me at university and I didn't know what to do with them. 
um, there were no guys coming on to me. I was in my stuck inside my own interior world still, but it was a chance to reboot and reset. So I, I rebooted me at university and I changed my name. I changed my name from Jonathan to John. Big move. Not exactly to Katie, but <laughs> the, the, the shock from my parents might as well have been the same. But I remember that was the first chance to redefine and find myself. And and I, if I'm to look back at my university years, I would say 90% of my friendships at university were female. But there were a few guys I became very comfortable with and spent time with. But it was probably a 90-10 female-male split. But that split equally, though, had zero relationship interest in it at all. And in fact, the first relationship I had was in my final year at university, and it was with a girl, and it's because she asked me out. She kind of put a bit of a heavy twist on it by saying, God has told me to marry you. And at the time, being a Christian, I thought, oh, if God has spoken, I ought to give it a try. And at that point, I started performing masculinity sufficient to go under the radar as normal. And I I think I found that incredibly difficult. So instead of finding my 20s the the opportunity for release and expression it was the it was the opposite was repression and i put myself firmly in in, in the closet and didn't know where to go with that and stayed locked in for a a, a good decade so i i think recognizing that the the 20s is not a time of freedom for people who are in their 50s now every decade of progress might push the opportunity to, to express yourself younger um, but for people my age, you know, the 20s were still difficult. It was Section 28, you know, um, things like that. You know, you couldn't educate. I'd gone through an entire school life with no sex ed, um, let alone and LGBT inclusive sex ed. So it was it was not free by far. You know, and I don't think I really expressed my teenage years till my 40s. <laughs> and then I went for them with a vengeance. Forgive my ignorance, as you say, kind of assuming that because my 20s have been a time of expression and everyone would have been exactly as you say it was the time of section 28 and that couldn't have happened so can I ask us to jump forward to when you did have that sense of uh coming out of the closet and that sense of experimenting and experiencing those things you've always wanted to uh kind of live truthfully you say that came in your 40s mm-hmm. yeah well I, I had the, I had the luck of being outed at 39 uh, I was married to a psychiatrist um and you know from my mid-30s onwards, I'd begun to cross-dress again, uh, you know, at home when she was at work. And one day I got caught. <laughs> and, um, and, and, she, and she outed me to my family and friends. And I actually have to thank her for that, because I think it would have taken me another decade to come out had I not been outed. Um, and I made a decision like sink or swim at that point. Um, now, 39 was all of, what, um, 13, 14 years ago now. Things had changed. There were transgender support groups that did exist. Uh, I went to it and I didn't feel like the people at it were anything like me. So I left and went back in the closet for another year. Um, I actually eventually found much more of a tribe amongst, interestingly enough, the, uh, the, the lesbians and the drag kings amongst women. But I guess also I, I dived into, I was both coming out of heterosexuality and, and cisgenderism, but I was also coming out of faith and I was also coming out of a marriage. I was also going into debt. And so I had about four or five different existential crises going on at the same time, which again meant just as I was at five, the struggle to find a tribe. Who do I belong to? Who can I be with? Who can I talk to? 
and 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 it became my, my closest confidence then around that age um probably 40 41 42 was again uh, stronger women um lesbian women bisexual women and some guys so i was trying to navigate my gender identity i was still struggling with like what the fuck is my sexuality at the same time anyway it doesn't seem to be based upon gender it seems to be based upon the person um and, and it took me a long while to discover that i was attracted to people but i went into therapy which was bloody brilliant and therapy i ended up actually going across to america and doing some in the UK, but I ended up spending a year doing sex and body workshops in California, um, going on a journey of identity. And, and I tried every bloody box available and all the boxes that weren't available. I tried all the stickers on the boxes. I pulled the wrapping off the boxes. I jumped into the box. I jumped into the box with somebody else. I jumped into the box with three or four of them. Um, I, I dated an amazing, um, both somebody who embodied both femininity and tomboyishness and bisexuality at the same time in a wonderful person who I met in California and ended up um, dating her for a year and um, loads from her and then met so many people out there that were different and where nobody cared how I identified or how I embodied it and that was the first time I changed my name and tried going with katie or kj or various things like that i never saw a need to ever abandon john or jonathan in that sense so eventually i just moved my john to my middle name and put katie at the beginning but the people i met were amazing because for many years pre any kind of hormones or surgeries um they accepted me as katie because i said i was katie and, and and even when you're doing these workshops they accepted me as katie and you can't exactly cross dress at a naked workshop so when you're standing there naked, um, penis and all, and still calling yourself Katie, um, and this was, you know, a dozen years ago, it was very forward thinking of them to just accept you. And this was not an LGBT group. This was simply a, a, a group of wacky Californians who didn't really care how, what box you put yourself in, just that you were trying to get in touch with you. That's all that mattered. And personal, I suppose it was part of the whole kind of, the, I wouldn't call it a personal growth cult at all, but the personal growth movement prioritised knowing yourself and being yourself. And the emphasis was upon yourself, not male or female. I encountered some Tantra during that time as well, and I became very annoyed by Tantra because of how binary it was still expressed, masculinity versus femininity again. I died, deep dived into literature during my 40s. Um, not not fiction this time, but um, autobiographies. I read every autobiography of a trans or gender variant person um, from early 20th century to now, looking for people like me. And I would get through about three or four chapters and go, yes, that's me, yes, that's me, yes, that's me. Oh my God, no, that's not me. And I would get to that moment in every book where, oh my God, no, that's not me. Because I was trying to write my life by finding someone else as a model for it. So this goes back to me as the five-year-old of, you know, looking for a male embodiment of how to do emotions. And yet, even when I find people who could be role models in my 40s, I'm then turned off by anyone who essentially didn't fit my idea of being me. And I was trying to find out how to do me by reading others rather than simply looking in the mirror and say, hey, you're there, find yourself. That's easy. 
and and it's that thing you do as teenagers you spend the whole time on the outside or sometimes are on the inside trying to be an individual and yet equally trying to belong and to belong you end up conforming to the music group the tribe the fashion group the goths or the emos or the mods or the rockers and you conform to be accepted and yet you spend the whole time bearing an aspect of your personality or your sexuality or anything about yourself um that then takes you years in therapy to come out and finally find the individual so i spent my 40s becoming an individual and and on that journey and i've often joked about it even doing stand-up comedy about it saying that i have been or am every letter of lgbtiqamp um and which one i'm currently at i don't know but <laughs> um because if how do you define someone's sexuality if you don't know their gender <laughs> and i remember the, the first woman after marriage I, I dated um for nearly a year she looked like annie lennox she was taller than me um and i'm not stupid probably brighter than me very strong personality she's a sex therapist and and she dressed in loose fitting male suits and had the you know the full annie lennox kind of short shaved older white hair look going on and we and i was experimenting with um a more feminine dress sense at the time uh you know skirts and all which i very rarely ever wear um and we would walk down the street and people would go oh there goes a heterosexual couple and they would assume she was the guy and i was the girl um and then we would talk and then they'd realize it was the other way around and they'd still assume we were as heterosexual it's just that the girl was cross-dressing and the guy was cross-dressing that's what it looked like and 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 yet no one ever asked us the question of what's your actual sexuality or what gender is or what pronouns this is before anyone ever asked anyone what their pronouns were they just saw two people who were very different who didn't conform and i then went to things like queer nightclubs in berlin and discovered places where nobody gave a fuck about your gender and a masculinity and femininity could exist in the same person at the same time or across a whole group of three people who'd all just emerged from the same toilet cubicle together and and i found everything instead of looking at the the transgender autobiographies that were very binary jumping from one gender to another i suddenly started reading ones like kate bornstein's uh, gender outlaw of the you know of the boy who gave up being a boy and then realized well that doesn't make me a girl necessarily but it does make me more me and um realizing that somebody who stepped outside of gender altogether was where i felt but i just didn't really know whether i had the balls to do it so i got rid of them to do it <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for sharing that's true there's just so much to unpack and um, so much wisdom and as i said at the top of the podcast just hearing you talk every time just makes me want to rethink re-see and just be a little bit braver there's that beautiful phrase of your reading of those books was you're trying to write your life by finding someone else as a model for it and just realizing the futility of that because the only way you can be authentic is just to look inward and find yourself and i love the simplicity of that phrase if anyone's listening who just feels a little bit lost if you're trying to find yourself look in the mirror you're there that sense of stop wasting time trying to conform or not wasting time it's all educative and time well spent to some extent if it helps you find yourself but that sense of uh, you're there all along underneath all those different masks you'll put on and different tribes you'll try and belong in in order to blend. So can I ask about your relationship with gender and identity now? Whereabouts you're at at this point in your life and your journey as Casey John went? Well, I guess it's I, 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 I've gone from finding gender to be my enemy to it being my friend. 
um, but equally a friend with whom I have a very casual and humorous relationship with. Um, we break up from time to time. We get back together from time to time. And um, and I and I, I you know somebody. I mean, one of the defining characteristics of mental health terms of people who are trans is that they have what's called um, gender dysphoria. Uh, gender identity dysphoria and 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 somebody said to me once katie you don't have gender dysphoria you have gender euphoria and i, and I realized actually i do and, and and i find the expression of gender no longer oppressive i find it um a wonderful opportunity to play with it to fuck with it to um it does mean that i still feel a little bit awkward sometimes going out in say a slightly more feminine dress sense and i've got breasts now so i can't hide them and they keep on growing so i don't know what's going on there but the I do find it slightly weird to sometimes go out with stubble and breasts at the same time. Um, so I still feel some degree of society's program of people who don't conform. But most of the time I have found a way to express gender. It usually starts every morning by, by choosing which pair of Dr. Martins to wear, of which I've now got over 160. So my, my fashion choice begins with a pair of Dr. Martins. And what I like about Dr. Martins is they're unisex. Although if you're listening, Dr. Martins, please stop labelling the few pairs on your store as male or female. They're all unisex. Men can wear flowery print, too. Um, you know, so there's this aspect that a pair of boots is a pair of boots. It's not a male or a female piece of clothing. And once I start with that, then I go for an aesthetic of what matches those boots. And I will draw my aesthetic from any gendered accoutrements available. And and. I've just been chatting over with, with my neighbour about my desire to to build a kind of Victorian gentleman's um, drawing room in, in an outbuilding in my garden with, you know, a whiskey cabinet, a pipe rack, a pool table, uh, you know, and, you know, big broadsheet newspapers and, and butlers who bring you the um, the visitor cards of those who have come to see you in your club and and there's this weird thing of loving the, the male masculine club aesthetic without any political judgment on everything else that was going on around that um, but equally loving the, the, the aesthetics of, of women in different parts of life as well and realizing that I now can do pick and mix gender um, I, you know I've I transitioned um, my body, um, but I actually went as part of my journey of going to California and things. I decided I wouldn't change my body until I could accept my body. So I did the exact opposite of going down the route of going to a psychiatrist and saying, I I I'm struggling with my body. Can you change it? I went on a personal journey to accept it before I then made a choice to change it. And then when I changed it, I said to my surgeon, I said, just get rid of aspects of gender. Um, but by then I'd already been on hormones, so I'd gained breasts, which then gave me a, a new secondary gender characteristic that society looks at um, and sees breasts and because I have long hair now, uh, as opposed to the buzz cut I had in my 30s, people will see, until I open my mouth, people will see a slightly more feminine presentation, but someone who dresses in a tomboy as well now. So my preferred style is, is jeans, Dot Martins, um, dungarees, and, you know, I kind of model myself after Barbara Good in The Good Life, um, you know, rather than Margot next door in her flowery dresses. And so that, that's more that's more me. I'm in the I was much much more comfortable in the boiler suit, but I also love art and aesthetic. And I would find life very dull if I could only wear the same boiler suit every day. And I love playing with colour and I love playing with pattern. And and I don't really see a gendered restriction around that. And I don't see really a gendered restriction to how I behave anymore. 
Um, it's another reason why I've chosen not to modify my voice, because I want to be authentically me, and authentically me means keeping the same voice I've always had, even if I've changed my outer shell in other ways. Um, I chose to have surgery, but I, the surgery, as I say, was mainly to remove um, male genitalia, um, and it didn't necessarily change how I felt, but it just felt like a load off my mind and a load off my body. Um, and it just felt utterly freeing to be much more of an androgynous um, tailor's dummy template that I could then put anything on it. And a bit like, I guess, um, in fashion, they prefer certain kinds of androgyny because it's easier to dress them. Um, and, and I found it certainly easier to dress when I no longer had bulges in some places. Um, although I'm now struggling with the problem of having bulges in other places. So I guess I have found now my place in my young 50s liberating. And I've not had a single day of regret around the surgical decisions I made. But equally, I struggle. If someone says are you male or female, I struggle to find an answer. <laughs> um and and I've been criticised by members of the trans community for failing to perform femininity correctly. And it's interesting that instead of having the judgments from the wider cisgender society saying men should do this and women should do that. Instead, I've found sometimes even within LGBT communities, um, a form of gender policing, a form of identity policing and sexuality policing, um, as we as we well know as. Well, well true of people who are bisexual, sometimes policed by people who are lesbian and gay, people who are transgender, policed by um, people who are gender critical. And, and, I, and I struggle with the fact that very often now the criticism comes from within more than even without. The rest of society just says, oh, it's fine, we've accepted you, now get on with it. Um, and, and instead now we critique each other. So I have found my new home, I guess, for now, amongst people who are non-binary. And, and I love the freedom of that label but for me it's a sticky label labels can be peeled off and new ones put on um, and so i find it's it's a loose fit and 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 like everything about gender that i do now i find it it's a loose fit and i can put on what i fancy um and, and what works for the situation and so i've gone full circle back to judith butler and genderist performance um my body and i'm still performing gender but at least i understand that i am performing it now and I understand that when, when I leave the house, that um, how I am seen is a is a presentation. It's a stage. It's a performance. And and it's just being OK with that and recognising that and knowing I'm doing it. So I, I guess I recognise that society sees gender that way and I see gender that way. Um, but that I'm OK with it. And 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 I love expressing both masculinity and femininity although apart that a lot of the time I would love to junk both those terms because I don't see it as masculine to be uh, you know assertive and confident and uh, and loud and domineering I, I, I see those things as exactly what they are assertive and loud and confident and domineering and it need not be a masculine or a feminine characteristic and therefore you're not policing a gender by saying hey you're being too much of the other or you're being too much of these characteristics Let's just let's just name those things where they exist and not make them about genders or about the hormones that go with those genders. You know, my whole body has got a very um, atypical relationship with hormones anyway. I've always had low testosterone levels and, and even now I've still got low estrogen levels. So neither hormone has risen to the top and dominated. And in the end, that has enabled me to 
feel this slightly androgynous person who can then put on and be who I like on top. I love that phrase. The start of the response about gender is a friend that you sometimes break up with or get back with. And that beautiful expression that I think would certainly help me re-see that concept of gender dysphoria is gender euphoria, where, as you said, gender isn't something repressive but expressive. So thank you so much for your candor. Before we part company, can I ask if there's anything else you'd like to add uh, at all that you think might be important for listeners to know about or to read or to go to if there's a sense of struggle with their own identity? We, need, we do need role models and representation, but we need role models in order to be ourselves, not to be the role models. So that, that's the kind of the, 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 the synthesis of the paradox of um, be yourself, look at others. The synthesis of those is get the courage to be like them being themselves. I think that's a beautiful way to end things, a sense of be yourself by getting the courage from other people who are themselves. So Katie John went, thank you so much. Absolute pleasure, James. Thank you for listening. This has been Mantor, the Masculinity Conversations, brought to you by me, James McDermott, and Story Machine Productions, with music by Jordan Mallory Skinner and produced by Sam Ruddock. We're keen to talk to anyone who wants to share their experience of masculinity. If you would like to be featured in a forthcoming episode, drop us a line at storymachineproductions at gmail.com.